0: So there might be emerging better ways to try and and track down the tiny bits of illicit use that happen in crypto, but I think also as criminals get to understand how traceable it is, they'll stick with cash like they always have, because cash is the best way for criminals to launder money and do illicit purposes, because it's cash. It's it, no, nothing gets more untraceable than cash it's got serial numbers but it can be put in a briefcase and carried around it's, you know, we don't see criminals doing that with private keys to wallet which is really the, the equivalent in cryptocurrencies if you wanted to treat it like cash
1: that is Michael Bacina and this is episode 49 of the Blockchain Pro podcast Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. I'm Adriana Bellotti and today's guest is Michael Bacina. Michael is a legal legend in the Australian blockchain community. He keeps us all up to date with his weekly blog, Bits of Blocks, and is a major contributor to discussions around legislation of crypto assets, DAOs, NFTs, smart contracts, CBDCs. If it's law-related, Mike knows about it. Now let's get to know Mike. Hi, Michael.
0: Hi, Adriana. Thanks so much for having me along.
1: Oh, thank you. I am excited to get you on. It's, this has been a long time coming. We've talked about it many times, like agendas are a problem in the crypto world, right? Right now.
0: There's just too much going on.
1: It's a good it problem is, to have. It is a good problem to have, indeed. Okay, let's jump right in. How did you decide to be a lawyer? Is that something you always wanted?
0: Oh, gosh, well, I've been practicing for 15 years, so that takes me back a little while. I decided to be a lawyer back probably at the last couple of years of high school. I went to Sydney Boys High at Moore Park, which, fun fact, was Sydney's first zoo. Um, and I'm sure people uh, joked about the students there not being behaved much better than the animals. <laughs> <laughs> but I was lucky enough to go to a selective high school and being a fairly competitive fellow, that really helped me excel because I was surrounded by lots of people who were really, really ambitious. So it seemed like everyone who I was going to high school with was either going to do medicine at Sydney Uni or law at one of the universities. So, so it was pretty much one of these things where there was just everyone going for these, these targets. And I went, look, law seems like a really exciting area. And the more I learned about it, the more I unpacked it, the more I realized there was so much specialization within entire legal industry. And I thought it was better than medicine because I wouldn't have someone's life in my, ha- my hands. So that seemed a bit scary. And I've always been a big fan of economics and game theories around that. So I ended up rolling into a you know, commerce degree with a major in economics plus a law degree on the side and then went on to do a master's of law as well. So I just really enjoy everything about the law. Like I was the kid who read terms and conditions of competitions to see if I could like get an edge on the, on the large companies that were running some kind of comp, which was always a bit of fun, but people would make fun of me for it. But I've always loved contracts. I've spent a large chunk of my my career working in, in contracts and in terms and conditions and things. And they, I just find them really interesting. So, I mean, it's a good thing for me.
1: It is indeed. Well, I try to read the terms and conditions of, you know, you know, when you're doing something online and there's that little box and you have to tick. And usually I go to myself, at least you're going to click on it and scan through it to see if there's anything that's out of the ordinary. So I try to do that every time, but it gets, gets to be a little bit, bit too much, right? Those terms and conditions are crazy most of the times.
0: Well, some of them by right, so don't be too harsh on them. <laughs> but it's all, it's, you know, good lawyers try and keep those things nice and simple. And I think increasingly you're seeing either summaries at the front. I think um, CryptoKitties has a really good for their NFT nifty license. Has a really nice summary, plus then the full legal license. So those who just want to quickly read the one minute summary or less can go, what is it? what's What's the quick, quick version? And then see the more detailed version as well, if they really want to get stuck into the, the bits that a court might need to interpret someday if there's an argument. But you're right, you know, the, the material that comes with Big computer software historically was so big that no one ever read it, um, which is challenging. But uh, you know, South Park made an episode joking around that about, about Apple owning people and whatnot. But they are important because when arguments come up from time to time, then you have to turn somewhere to say, well, what is the agreement between the parties as to what's going on? And if there's no written agreement, then... We're left with the default stuff under consumer protection law, so no business ever wants to be left with that because it 's going to usually be <laughs> against their interests, so they're the ones who incentivize to put something down there but you know that 's uh, from that I suppose nerdy contract place i I rolled into law school, but I also as part of being in law school, went into business with a good friend of mine, building website development, databasing, setting up backup systems for people. We were lucky enough to to do work with World Vision and a number of people around the Sydney Olympics, including some of the performers at the opening ceremony and some B and C grade celebrities back then. Also got into tech fairly early and had a good time doing that. So I've had an interesting blend, very different to most lawyers and certainly very different to developers who, who learn how to code. But I never had formal training in coding. I was always a self-taught developer in that range. So I don't pretend to be an amazing, amazing coder.
1: Is that one of the reasons why you're into blockchain stuff?
0: I don't know if that, I think it's almost the other way around. I think I really love tech and I've always really loved tech. So before I was even at university in late in high school and early uni, I was doing video game reviews for video rental companies to recommend what they should buy because they were, so, you know, thought these kids seem like they know what's hip. And the joke was on them. We probably didn't, but we got lots of free video games, we got to play them and write video game reviews. So I've always, always loved technology and, and computers. So back in the day, I would be tinkering and trying to squeeze every megahertz of speed out of an old Pentium. Uh, just to try and you know play the latest game and and was all over dial up when it came for a long time my my ringtone was a 56k modem handshake so i've always nerded out quite a bit around uh you know everything that i do and so it just sort of as my legal career carried along technology just became a bigger and bigger piece of it and then got completely swallowed when when blockchain came along
1: okay so what happened then
0: well i was writing more and trying to get more of my thoughts out there about technology and law because I just felt that most, you know, a lot of, there was a number of leading people in the space writing about tech and law. You know, Nick Sabos is a giant in the, in the space around smart contracts, but it never felt to me like there was a great number of them. And then I realized you know, just doing, having set up websites previously, being able to just be out there and get my, my thoughts out there and name out there would be useful because I could learn more and, and also just to help develop my legal practice and bring in more technology-related work. So I wrote something about smart contracts early on, to say these were really interesting. And then I was invited to come and talk at a conference. And I wasn't really doing very much of that at the time, but I'd made a promise to myself not to turn down speaking invitations. So I said, all right, well, under my new business development policy, I have to do it. Because usually I'd say, oh, it's a bit scary to go to a conference to talk in front of 100 lawyers who, lawyers are not known for being uncritical. But I went, okay, I'll do it because I have to, because I promised myself. And then they said, wonderful. Uh, and by the way, we need a paper. I went, oh, okay. Uh, and this was you know, five days out, so I think whoever their speaker was had fallen off or had, had said they weren't able to do it. So what happened then was I stopped and went, okay, I'll go write a paper. So I did a bunch of research and really got stuck into smart contracts at a level, This was in early Ethereum days, to figure out what they were, and then very rapidly stepped off the edge of the rabbit hole, went and you know, figured out how to buy Ethereum and, and dabble more in crypto. And spend the next three days, just put everything on hold in my legal practice and, and wrote this paper. And then that paper got picked up and put in a couple of smaller internet journals and got updated a few times, which was, which was really fantastic. But just really being nudged into almost by accident of putting out something that had to summarize everything that was going on at the time and then getting it out there so that people would be able to see what was happening. I went and did my talk at the, at the conference and then several lawyers came up to me and said, we have no idea what anything it is that you're talking about, but several of our clients who we don't know how to help need help. Why don't you look after them? And then before I knew it, I was acting for a whole bunch of businesses who were looking to issue tokens and do cool blockchain things. And since then, my legal practice has been you know, 10 times more fun than anything I've ever done before then, because I'm just so lucky to get to work with people like yourself and, and amazing projects, just doing incredible things. And in some cases, we're literally trying to make the law because we're trying to figure out how we can get the gray areas of law to match up with this new tech, which is a really fun thing to do. And I've always been, even before I got dragged into the rabbit hole for blockchain, my legal practice has been oriented around, I really like learning my clients' businesses and understanding how they work, um, especially from an economics and game theory perspective. It's really interesting. That's kind of, you know, I don't just like boring terms and conditions. I like the way it all interacts and, and what incentives it sets up for human behavior. Turns out a lot of blockchain systems and token systems follow that same kind of theory. You've got to have the right incentives or it's not going to work. So pure luck that... I would be really interested in this kind of alignment of incentives and then see how that's being done in blockchain and in smart contracts and and ongoing, because designing those systems is really important to make sure that they're going to work in the long run and be competitive or more efficient to replace existing systems. Otherwise, you just won't see adoption. So uh, I feel very, very blessed that I get to immerse myself constantly in really, really fun and exciting things that I find really, really engaging.
1: Yeah, that is really wonderful. What are some of the differences that you can observe from when you first wrote your paper in 2015, I would assume, 16? Ethereum was just starting, would have been about then, right? Been, yeah,
0: it would have been a bit after, yeah. It was about, when Ethereum was about $40. <laughs> so I think a little <laughs> bit later than that. I usually measure by, measure crypto by the time, by the all-time highs. <laughs> so yeah, a bit. I think about 2016, late 2016, I think it would have been.
1: So what are some of the things that have like, changed between then and now?
0: Oh, well, obviously, there's been a Cambrian explosion of people coming into the space. I suppose what's changed from them and now is to really identify those people like yourself and others who are the OGs and have just been there wanting to work in these systems and tech to really make lasting change. Anytime there's a massively growing area, you have a lot of people who come along, entrepreneurs who see an opportunity and want to take advantage of it. Of course, there's always a fair share of shysters who come along and go, ooh, easy money. And there was probably some of that back in the ICO days as well. So just seeing that journey of that huge initial boom that happened and then the crypto winter and then things you know, spinning up again, you know, that big change through there that shook, shook out a lot of weak hands, as it were, and have left people who really care about the whole industry and driving things forward and making actual like, fundamental change to how we interact in our economy and business.
1: It's interesting because I think Australia has been kind of proactive in terms of trying to keep up with crypto. There has been like a Senate inquiry back in 15, and then there was some changes in the taxation law, which were changed again a while back. And now we just had another Senate inquiry. How are some of the things that came out of that inquiry that you're excited about? And do you have any predictions as to when we're going to see them happen in reality?
0: You know, we were really relying upon that first Senate inquiry for so long, which was inquiring into virtual currency and, and was kind of took place at a time when you can almost, if you read some of the old handset stuff around You can see that people are really struggling to get their heads around what the hell this thing is uh, and how is it going to work at all. But I think they did okay at the time for the information they had and the resources they had. But seeing the Bragg inquiry this time around, particularly the sort of third part of the inquiry that spun up this extra extension, essentially purely for digital assets, that has been so exciting because the final report from these kinds of Senate inquiries is not usually devoted to a single topic in the way that this one has been. So the earlier interim reports were useful, but really the, the committee went all in on digital assets and crypto in this whole, in this last third. And that is really promising. Like Australia is this promising jurisdiction. We always feel like we're trying to struggle to keep up with some of the other more nimble jurisdictions, but we just have such an incredible grassroots developer base and entrepreneurial base, notwithstanding the limitations of you know, VC investment. Australia has always struggled to get really good VC investment around Startups, even though we've got great ideas, really hardworking people, and in some ways, I think blockchain and the way that certain systems and token token interactions have levelled the playing field of people trying to get funded, and some people who've you know made heaps and heaps of money on Bitcoin and, and Ethereum are then coming back and helping to build up new and exciting projects. They've almost had an environment where. You had to learn to survive in a in a really difficult fundraising space, and so were then better positioned when the barriers were lowered to going global and getting access to people who are more crypto native around that, which is really fascinating. But I think that you know out of the current report, the, the most unexpected and pleasant recommendation was around DAOs. When I picked up that report, I pretty much called Joni Pirovich right away and just said, "Oh my gosh!" And she she was like, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible!" Because uh, too, and we spend many hours that can fit into how DAOs work now and how they could be accommodated in a legal framework. Which is really interesting. So, the Dow recommendation was the most unexpected and most pleasant because, you know, we've said that Australia needs to catch up to certain jurisdictions. You know, Singapore and the UK and Germany and certain areas have just stepped, I think, a bit ahead of us in becoming more crypto friendly and giving certainty to investment and businesses there in a really good way. And Australia's been a little bit lagging there, but that kind of recommendation would just bring us to the front of the pack. And, you know, we're already positioned to catch up with recommendation one and two, around digital asset exchange licensing and custody rules, which are really important and it's very timely. But that Dow recommendation, if it's done right, is promising because I don't, uh, the, having a new company structure is, is quite extraordinary and it's, and it's near revolutionary. That's, that kind of thing has not come along very often. And I'm not aware of, you know, outside of a couple of states of America, there's not many countries who have even posited should this happen. So those recommendations are not yet policy and not yet formally adopted. I would love to see them all adopt it. You know, there is a chance we could we could lose the Dow one, which would be a big shame, but the mere fact that it's been a recommendation and it's sitting there, so it's ready to go as policy if a government wants to take it on, is fantastic. To answer your earlier question of when will we see, you know, deployment of those kinds of recommendations, the answer is it's gonna take longer than everyone would like. You know uh, Wyoming has done a pretty good job drafting up for their company laws a legally wrapped DAO. But even so, with the careful drafting that Caitlin Long and others did there, they've taken criticism for things that they haven't done around around those legal structures. So there's a lot of learnings from those who've who've gone a little bit ahead on DAOs, and the way our Corporations Act works is pretty special to Australia. And so there's a lot of moving parts that would need to be carefully dealt with. So I'm hopeful that we will see some indication on policy adoption for the recommendations before the next election, because I think we will have on the first half of next year because I think that would be really great to go to the polls, knowing where the different parties sit. I mean, the statistics from the, the committee that came out during the hearings of one in five Australians having crypto and 32% of millennials owning crypto directly are huge, right? That's massive. That's high, some of the highest penetration of crypto ownership in the world. And it's interesting to me because usually you see disengagement of politics at the younger level. And so that millennial generational gap, you would typically see a low political engagement, but suddenly you have politicians involved in policy, which impacts the bottom line of people that normally wouldn't have the bottom line impacted by government policy until they're a bit older. So I think it's going to be a really interesting election cycle. And I'm hoping we're going to have some great policy in there. And then it's still going to take a couple of years to work through the legislation. But once we get it started, we know it'll get there.
1: Do you have um, high hopes for a resolution uh, to the problem with debanking? I think we had new companies, old companies, all sorts of sizes that gave testimonial about having been debanked and how that experience is really poor. What do you think is going to happen there?
0: I can't see the government getting, at, getting a, a liberal government getting involved in an interventionist approach. I could see a labor government doing that a bit more. Politically, I probably lean a bit more liberal. But when it comes to ensuring that one group of people doesn't get to tell another group of people who they ought to do business with, when I look at it from that perspective and from an economics perspective to say, look, we should have as free a market as possible, the two ways of looking at it from that side are, as Andrew Bragg said at Blockchain Week this year, the government shouldn't tell banks who they should or shouldn't do business with. But in Australia, when we have a very concentrated banking sector and a, number of, a limited number of very powerful banks, who essentially are the gatekeepers to digital payments entirely. They're in a very privileged position and they operate under license. So the government is, should also have a responsibility to ensure that those parties who have special positions and are gatekeepers and can effectively shut down economic activity with a rule acting in a way that is supportive to business. And I agree with Senator Bragg's views and I'm hopeful that as education moves on and you know, the ideas of crypto as being... For money launderers, just starts to fade away, which is sadly still happening. I saw an article in the City Morning Herald the other day that still just carried on about, you know, the same old trope of crypto being a favourite of money launderers, and it's just nonsense. But it takes a long time for people to get around the boring truth of reading Chainalysis's crypto crime report that has, you know, fraction of a percent of transactions being involved in any kind of illicit activity. And whenever you see you know, busts happening by the Department of Justice, like in the Welcome to Video or other. Situations where there's been tracing, I'm hopeful that those stories carry through the story of, well, the reason these people got caught is because they were using a highly traceable system. I think that banks are starting to wake up to that and they're starting to get digital asset groups inside who realize how powerful that tracing is. Sometimes it worries me because I say, well, are we going to end up in a utopia of digital assets or a dystopia where everything is highly traced? Because the privacy crime tension is never higher than when it comes to a public blockchain where you can far more easily trace things. And and you can, sure, use tornado cash or a mixer, but the fact that that was used is readily apparent. And I think you'll see issues coming up where banks might start to become friendlier, but they might require on-chain tracing and they might require things that move closer to the know-your-transaction level, which is cool in one way, but also slightly scary in another way to say, oh, is that money you're paying with too dirty for the business to touch because it has passed through some wallet so many steps ago that is associated with some kind of illicit activity, which from one side is exciting from a lawyer perspective in saying, well, instead of collecting people's identification, you could see if where they're paying from is, is potentially dirty and then refuse to accept dirty money. But on the other side, it's slightly scary to people because it's a, well, hang on a minute, I could have a transaction rejected based on whether my, you know, to use a metaphor, whether the $20 note I'm paying is encrusted with cocaine. You know, that's the principle to which some people would say, that seems rather, rather odd that their money could become... Worthless or or more valuable, depending on where it had been. But we already see that, right? There's Silk Road wallets that haven't been touched for years with billions of dollars of Bitcoin in them. And they can't, whoever controls those wallets can't move anything because it's being watched. Any shift in any kind of illicit wallet gets the attention of Chainalysis and others and Ellipsis. And that's, you know, really, really interesting at that level of monitoring. So I'm very fascinated to see where that goes. But I, I just think the more banks learn about it, the more they'll fix the problem themselves. So CBA's announcement the other day of bringing crypto into their app. Real shame that they didn't use an Australian exchange, which is a really missed opportunity. But even seeing BTC markets you know, connecting with vaults to bring banking services into their customer base, I think that the commercial driver will solve the problem eventually. It's really frustrating and we'd like to see legislative in- intervention to help, but really the banks just have to see the benefits that are coming from this increasing valuable industry. And I think it'll fix itself that way. So, to that end, I, I kind of reluctantly agree with that more free market libertarian approach of let the businesses do business with who they want, because I think that the economics will fall down on the side of the bank saying, no, we will do this. But we don't, you know, issues around privacy coins where we see payment providers have, you know, flat out prohibitions on any of their customers having any kind of exposure to a privacy coin. And privacy coins serve an important purpose for people who genuinely want to keep things private. Or as I always joke, you know, you can run away from the police in sneakers as well as play, you know, a soccer game. Doesn't mean sneakers should be banned just because they can be used for for some kind of illicit purpose. And are really good if you want to run fast. Exactly. Um, it's it's a bad targeting. So I'm a big fan of police doing proper old fashioned work and not trying to create new powers or businesses. You know, AML is, is a complicated area and it imposes massive burdens on the economy and business for a relatively small number of preventative blocks, which is you know out of all of our anti-crime political systems, it's a very lopsided one. You know, During COVID, people got raised massive objections to checking in places, but anti-money laundering at the financial payment end is the equivalent of constant QR code check-ins and, ident- and show us your papers and identification requirements. And we're used to it because we're used to dealing with it in banking. And those gatekeepers at banking have always managed it in a way that it hasn't become too much friction. But when it's in crypto and people can see it more, they start to get a bit more frustrated by it or a bit more aware of it and become a bit more concerned at not only, you know, where is their information going commercially, but how much of it is going back to to the government and for what purpose and is it worth doing. And there might so there might be emerging better ways to try and, and track down the tiny bits of illicit use that happen in crypto. But I think also as criminals get to understand how traceable it is, they'll stick with cash like they always have, because cash is the best way for criminals to launder money and do illicit purposes because it's cash. It's it's no, nothing gets more untraceable than cash. It's got zero numbers, but it can be put in a briefcase and carried around. It's, you know, we don't see criminals doing that with private keys to wallet, which is really the, the equivalent in cryptocurrencies if you wanted to treat it like cash. I think there was one excellent stall at Consensus a couple of years ago when I, before, in the before times before COVID, where there was a great company making uh, banknotes, and they were making a polymer banknote, which was two halves stuck together, and the private key was inside. So, that if you wanted to get to the private key, you had to destroy the banknote. But otherwise, the face value of the banknote was what was in the wallet, such that you could check the wallet balance and you had a note, which was an actual physical representation of, as it was then, it was like 0.1 of a Bitcoin note. And I thought it was a really cool, cool idea. They were also selling actual physical gold notes that I think I bought a few of because they were kind of cool, where it's so ridiculously thin and small piece of gold, it wasn't too expensive. But I liked the idea that you could make a physical banknote out of a cryptocurrency. And still have it verifiable online and have to destroy it if you wanted to then go purely back online. I thought that was a really neat bridging of cash. I don't know how they're going along in adoption, but you know, I think it'd be fairly hard to get a, good, a lot of adoption there. You know, that's the kind of thing that you might say, okay, I could see that being used for illicit activity a heck of a lot more than people moving things around on chain where it's traceable.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. There's so much that's happening in the space of privacy right now that we could spend the next hour just talking about that, right? Because from how coins are traceable to how people keep their wallets and their private keys. There are a lot that can be talked about there. But in the spirit of that, what is one simple thing that people forget to think about when they're starting their crypto business uh, that may lead to a major problem? Have you had any experience um, with things that might seem like, oh, we can think about that later, but then it comes to bite people when they least expect?
0: Oh, look, that's a tricky one because there's always a balance right there's people who like to do startups where they're all about particularly if they're founding something new or it's all about you got to get the traction you got to get the traction you got to make sure there's product market fit uh, and it's successful and it has value before you do anything else right the the kind of lean startup model been popularized out of silicon valley which is largely you know antithesis to lawyers who say well what's the point of creating value if you're not protecting it properly? So generally speaking, when I look at any kind of new business, that's my view is, well, if you're creating value somewhere, you need to create, you need to protect the value you're creating. And so if it's in the NFT space, it's like, okay, well you better make sure the IP is protected. Otherwise you're going to have a heck of a cleanup later to try and um, get people to sign off on things and transfer IP around to make sure it's in the right places. Um, Similarly, but obviously, as a contracts lawyer, I focus in on contracts to say, well, if you're going into business with business partners, what's the agreement? What's the plan? If someone's hit by a bus, which is you know, being hit by a bus is usually a proxy for if someone gets divorced or someone has a fight, but it serves the same purpose to figure out and get people thinking. I suppose the number one issue that I see people don't think about, and I know it's encouraged, is that sort of exit point or a dissolution point to say everyone always says it to say start at the end with your goal what is it you're trying to achieve and what will success look like and work it all backwards from there because you know i could put together a list of 100 things someone should do legally as a startup and they won't do half of them because they don't want to spend them you know spend the money before they know that idea is successful or say no investors are pressuring this but i think that that number one thing of really having that very very clear idea of what's it going to be and what what are you trying to achieve and then working it backwards from there let's a project, prioritize and triage what is the most important part. And that then can feed into the notion of what's the core value we're trying to protect. And so what legal, what minimum viable legals do we need to make sure that we're managing the risks we can manage? Because you can't manage every single risk. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing any kind of business at all. But trying to figure that out, I think, is really important. And then when there's a pivot, that's fine. But that pivoting has to go into that really deep strategic plan of, okay, well, what are we doing? And you, you, know, you often hear of people, oh, we're going to pivot to this, we're going to pivot to that. And there's a, there is a danger of that being an opportunistic shift, which can work out fine. But you know I've worked with, I don't know how many new businesses and helped businesses grow through and done lots of legals. And it's the ones that stand out are where a founder has a very clear vision, even if that vision evolves over time. That is the sticking to that vision like, like a dog with a bone that won't let go and just go and continually making a return to that seems to me to be... Uh, the number one thing that needs to be done at that very early stage because everything else flows from that and they can really stay focused and, and chart a course from there. Does that make
1: sense? Yes, yeah, that does make sense. Uh, vision first and make sure your legals are all... Like you're on top of your legals, right? From the get-go, don't procrastinate on having things done and, and making those decisions regarding the founders and regarding what happens when people fight, for example. I've, I've seen, like we had an example in Sydney where there's this really great project and, and the team was, you know, gelled well together and they were friends since they were kids and then one of them had to leave the company and they didn't have... Like provisions for what to do if in that case. And then they had to have a bit of a fight about it. But in the end, everything was all right. But if they had done the contracts with those provisions in place, they wouldn't have to go through the pain of losing a friendship. That's absolutely
0: right. And and look, I did that loose arrangement in my first business, which I got into business with one of my best mates at the time, who's still one of my best mates. But I suppose when I was more moving to exit, it definitely had some issues of like, oh, I wish I'd thought of this early on and put something in place. And it was a stressor. And, and you're right. When there's pre-existing relationships, especially I see where there's families who are, or you know, family members involved in businesses, there's a lot of unsaid things that are fine until they're not. But when they're not, they become much bigger issues than they would otherwise be. It's again, it's going back to that touchstone of what's our guiding principle here. And so I hammer that a lot when I'm going through, you know, shareholder agreements and other things with people about, okay, great, but what's, what's going to happen in this edge case here or, or in principle around this bad situation? What are you going to agree right now? Well, because everything's easy when everyone's friends. And if you plan it right, if there's a problem, then you have a pathway. That at least everyone's agreed to and you get 90% of the way if you're lucky to solving the problem and it and helps keep relationships going. But it's stressful. And it's stressful even, even if you know, people have a good relationship and have set things up in head, ahead of time. And reducing stress is very important for everyone. You don't want the distractions. No one should be you know, wishing to end up stuck in dispute or having stresses about shareholders or other founders because it just distracts from the delivery and building out excellent products, which is what they're trying to do.
1: True. All right, that is excellent advice without being legal or financial advice. Just life advice. <laughs> Uh, All right. We arrived at the quick three. This is the home stretch. So let's talk about what book you're reading, what's your favorite crypto resource, and what's your favorite project?
0: I am reading in fits and bursts a fairly dull history of the US Civil War. (laughs) It's interesting. Um, I, I really like American history, so I try and I try and have my reading as something that's a little bit disconnected. I've got a pile of blockchain-related books sitting on my bedside table that I should get to, but I spent some time living in Canada, and I, I always found American history really interesting in high school. So I, I like a bit. I like some of my history, for European and American history. Oh, my favorite crypto project. Look, I love Algorand. It's such a great project. I'm not sorry hey. to be a fanboy at your show, but having you know, having sat next to a we at lunch and. That's one of the white papers I read end-to-end. Probably, it's probably the white paper I got most excited about after Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's probably why it's my favorite current project. Because you know, you've got Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you can't really say they're your favorite project because they're just so massive and awesome. But what was in the, the way Algorand is set up, from a game theory perspective, clicked with me and I got it. And I went, this is actually a proper you know, Generation 2 blockchain that actually solves a whole bunch of the, of the issues that everyone criticized Gen 1s and it built on the learnings from the early blockchains. And it just comes out of that ridiculous pedigree team. So it gets around a whole lot of, oh, who are these random people who made it? Who are these anonymous people? It's not anonymous people. It's very well known from a very well-known university. So I love it for a whole bunch of reasons. So that kind of really low transaction fee means it just resolves a whole bunch of the issues that people complain about constantly on ETH, even though I dearly love ETH and being the birthplace of all those amazing smart contracts. And Bitcoin's always going to be You know, just huge. But Algorand is just so interesting. That's a project that I feel like it deserves to just be not necessarily some wildly higher price. It just deserves to have so much more penetration of projects on it because it's just so good. Uh, And I recommend it to people who are looking at private installs as well, because I say, sure, you could get Solidity developers and do a private Ethereum on it to work. But also, there's just some structural differences that I think Algorand makes for potentially a better private install as well which is quite neat, the way they've, they've really thought through what it should be. And they've had that vision of, okay, we're going to do this. And that, the approach to doing the whole consensus mechanism is just very, very elegant. Very elegant, but in a way that's quite accessible.
1: Awesome. I could not agree with you more there. And what's your favorite resource?
0: Well, I, mean, I probably would plug my own resource, wouldn't I? <laughs> no, I don't know. I read fairly broadly and widely. You know, I I like the the Coinfind news aggregator. I'm always traveling through. I love Robin Sosnow's email. You know, Independent Reserve and BTC Markets put out great email lists. Kerman Colley does a fantastic DeFi paid one. Uh, I think Maurice Cocaine's is putting out a a currently free but probably paid in the future DeFi one as well. So there's I don't know if I, I'd be really hard pressed to pick one. Like I struggle to to filter down all the amazing things each week to try and do three to five that I can write up on bits of blocks, which is you know a small resource and I focus on the nerdy technology legal side, but the range of stuff I need to read to just, you know, get across those things is, is there. And, you know, I never, never underestimate Reddit and some of these private Facebook groups that are looking at DeFi stuff. I kind of like, I suppose I would lean towards a range of DeFi resources because there's so much fascinating stuff happening in the space that trying to just see the new things coming out to see what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve is really interesting.
1: So, in summary, would you say that your favorite resource would be the email newsletters that you subscribe to? I think so,
0: yes. I can focus in on the ones that aren't too gigantic. So, you know, Robin sells now. is great because it's just a collection of links out. So usually they're aggregating a bit of stuff that I can go out and find interesting stuff that I look at. And, and I think the CoinFire aggregator does a pretty good job on that as well. But they, they're, a bit, they're a bit more price-oriented. There's a few aggregators that pull together a whole bunch of different news sources in one so you can filter it by keywords. So it's a really interesting resource so that you can highlight the things you want to see. But a lot of those aggregators are filled with, you know, pricing and trading news. So if, if you want to get pricing and trading news, I guess they're really good for you. But if you're looking for not that, which is usually me, um, then, then they're you're the bit of stuff you got to plow through.
1: Awesome, that's it, we're done. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, Adriana. I really appreciate
1: it. And that is the insightful Michael Bochina. Get in touch with Mike. Follow him on Twitter. He always has interesting observations about legislation in crypto. Also, subscribe to his um, weekly newsletter, Bits of Blocks. Links are in the description for you. All right, friends, that's it for me today. Hope you have a wonderful day, whatever you are, whatever you're doing. I'll see you on the next block. Bye.